Hey, everybody. Welcome to All Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. Thank you so much for being here today. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Generation You Can, my fueling source of choice. I love their energy performance drinks. I use them before my long runs, and I also love their Anytime Energy Bars. I love the coffee flavor. That is my favorite. You heard from Meb Kofleski on this podcast just a couple episodes ago, and he uses UCAN as well. I love UCAN because it provides long-lasting, steady energy with no sugar spikes or bonks. You guys go to generationucan.com slash another and use the code ANOTHER19 to get 15% off your order. Thank you, Generation UCAN, for being an awesome supporter of this podcast. All right, guys, today's episode, it's episode 164. And this is my live podcast episode that I did this past Sunday with Scott Jurek and Jenny Jurek joined us for the end of the podcast as well. Really fun event here in Indianapolis. Over 350 people showed up at the District Tap. The live show was sponsored by Michelob Ultra, Lily Trotters, and Coros Global. You all know Lily Trotters is my favorite compression sock. I want to let you know that you can get 25% off of Lily Trotters if you use the code ANOTHER. Check them out. That will be in the show notes. And you can get 10% off your Coros watch, which, guys, it is simple, it is accurate, and I'm loving it. Just use the code ANOTHER and you can get 10% off your watch of choice. We were so honored to be able to give away so many pairs of Lily Trotter socks, and we even gave away a Coros watch, which is really awesome. All right, and I do have some listener questions at the end of this podcast that I left in. They were listener questions from people in the audience at the live show. I debated keeping them in because I wasn't sure how it would flow uh, for the actual audio here on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to it. But Scott's answers are always just so good that I didn't want to leave anything out. I wanted to provide you guys as much opportunity to hear from him as possible. I want to give a big thanks to Chrissy Mail, ultra runner Chrissy Mail, who is just awesome. She's a Lily Trotters athlete and... I've gotten to know her. I've interviewed her on the podcast before. She connected me with the Jurex, and I just thank her so much for doing that because she believes in the vision for my show and trusted me, you know, behind the mic to to chat with her friends. And if it weren't for her, this interview would not have been possible. So thank you, Chrissy, so much. All right, if you're new to the show, I know there's probably a lot of new ultra runners listening right now. Uh, you can find me on social media. I'm Lindsay Hine, 626 on Instagram, Lindsay Hine on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook as well, where we have a group. I'll have another podcast with Lindsay Hine. Thanks for being here. I hope you stick around. I've got tons of other great ultra runner episodes on here. We've got one with Courtney DeWalter, Jim Walmsley. Actually, I have a new one with Jim Walmsley coming out here in a couple weeks. So there is something, a little something for everyone here in this podcast. And I'm just so excited to have anybody new joining the show. All right, guys, enjoy my conversation with Scott Jurek and Jenny Jurek. Hello. He can't, can't hear me. <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming out. This is so exciting. What great energy uh, to come out and listen to Scott and, and Lindsay and, and their story. My name is Bob Kennedy. I... Thank you. I own Athletic Annex, a running and walking specialty store here in Indianapolis. First of all, big thank you to Michelob Ultra and District Tap for making this happen. Uh, we much appreciate that. So make sure you're 
uh, drinking Michelob Ultra tonight responsibly, right? So when we leave here, we're safe. Uh, but thanks very much for those two, Mick Ultra and District Tap, for making this happen. So tonight is actually a kickoff to a series of events leading up to the 500 Festivals Mini Marathon here in Indianapolis. Who's, who's, who's heard of that event before, right? Yeah, it's a huge event here in Indianapolis, super exciting. Half marathon, 5K in early May, runs around the track out of the speedway. It's great. Uh, on your table, there's a list of events. So with Mick Ultra, with the 500 Festival, and Athletic Annex's training group, we're hosting some meetup runs between now and then. We'd love for you guys to come out. Man, if we got this crowd, all those, that'd be fun, wouldn't it? That'd be a blast. I know, I'm, I know I'm forgetting a ton of stuff because I'm just excited to listen to Scott talk in a minute. Um, I'm going to get out of the way here in a minute and get on with the program. I want to introduce Lindsay Hine, who's the host tonight. And I've known Lindsay for a while. Uh, we've worked together at Athletic Annex uh, in the past. Uh, she is an avid runner, a mother of four boys who are intense and exciting and awesome because they're in the store a lot so that's a lot of fun uh, and her husband Glenn's an avid runner too he's right here so they are a great asset uh, to the running community not only just in central Indiana but across the country and I watched Lindsay launch her podcast uh, who's who's listened I'm another it's great you should check it out and um, it's, it's awesome. She really, she really uh, has this great kind of way of talking with everyday runners, uh, all the way up to people like Shalane Flanagan, Scott Jurek. Um, I don't know where I fit on there, but I have been a guest on the show. So I'm just honored to be part of that. But Lindsay is doing a phenomenal job, and I'm proud to call her a great friend and, uh, and want to encourage her to keep being such a great positive part of the running community in this country. So, Lindsay, I'll turn it over to you, and we'll look forward to the show. All right. Oh, man, thank you guys so much for coming to this event tonight. This means so much to me. I, I knew that Scott Jerk was a huge name uh, in the running scene, but I did not know that as soon as we released tickets that they would be gone in two hours. <laughs> so thank you, District Tap, for opening this entire restaurant to us because I think we filled the house, guys. <laughs> I want to thank some sponsors who have made this happen. Michelob Ultra, they are our foot in the door to this restaurant, and uh, they've partnered with me with this vision to have a live show in January, a series of events with Athletic Annex leading up to the mini, and we're gonna do another live show in May. I don't know, maybe we can twist Scott's arm to come back. Um, I think we could fill the house again, but I wanna thank Michelob Ultra, I wanna thank Athletic Annex, the 500 Festival Mini Marathon, Lily Trotters, Coros Global, and who am I forgetting? Brooks Running. Uh, so yeah, thank you guys, and thank you all for being here. I had this dream like three years ago to start this podcast, and I wanted to talk to motivating and inspiring athletes. And um, I'm so honored that I've been able to continue doing this. And it's because of anybody here that's listened 
that I'm able to. So if you've ever listened to my show even one time, thank you so much. And if you haven't, get your phone out and subscribe to I'll Have Another Podcast with Lindsay Hyde. <laughs> um, but today I want to introduce to you guys uh, Scott Jurek. I think that you know who he is, but he is a father, a husband, an author, and one of the greatest runners of all time. He is a, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forget things, but I'm not going to look at my note cards when I introduce you. Uh, he's won Western States seven consecutive times, Badwater 135 twice, the Hard Rock 100, the Spartathlon, which I just learned about this race. It's crazy, you guys. Um, what else? There's so much more. He recently uh, took the Appalachian Trail with his wife, Jenny. She was his crew and uh, became the fastest known time in 2015. We're going to talk about all of that. Scott Jurek, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. I didn't realize the Bob Kennedy uh, would be introducing us. Like, those of you, I mean, I don't even know if there's any folks. Everybody probably knows who he is in Indiana, but if you don't, you really need to look him up because, uh, yeah, I was just shocked. I didn't realize he'd be here tonight. And those of you, again, he's a real legend, and it's just a real honor and pleasure. So it, it goes to show you, you guys have uh, amazing talent here and a lot of history with running. Obviously, you know that, but it's great to be back in the Midwest. Thank you. We have a Minnesotian. Is that how you say it? How do you say it? Minnesotan. Minnesotan. I knew <laughs> yeah. I was going to get that wrong. Well, especially, I, go ahead. Especially up north. That's how yes. you say it. Yes. Well, I want to I kick this off, and, and we won't spend too much time at the beginning, but I'm going to assume that not everybody listening here and not everybody that listens to the podcast um, knows your story from the beginning. So let's set the scene from your childhood so that we can really see how you became the fierce competitor that you became and the man that you are today. You talk about in your book, Eat and Run, that you uh, grew up with a tough dad, your mom was sick, and you didn't have a lot of money. So how did those things shape you to become Scott Jurek? Well, I think it's a lot, like a lot of things in life, our background and our past really, um, whether we want it to or not, shapes us. And for me, I grew up uh, out in the woods in the sticks, uh, five miles from town. I didn't get to play with kids my age because there were no kids on the dead end road that I lived on. And so running wasn't something I aspired to. I wanted to be, uh, actually when I was in high school, I wanted to be a game warden. So it goes to show you <laughs> how far I've uh, changed that uh, course and where my life has taken me. But uh, I enjoyed the outdoors. I spent a lot of time hunting and fishing. I spent time out in our gardens, picking rocks and pulling weeds, things I hated as a kid. And then, lo and behold, uh, you know, growing up in this really um, just simple life, so to speak. Uh, my parents lived on food stamps for a few years. I always wondered you know, why we were getting this weird cheese in big boxes, and why was mom paying uh, for our groceries with these stamps or these stickers that I saw. And so I, I grew up really simply. Um, like a lot of kids in the, the early 70s. And it was something I didn't really think a lot about. It just, that was life. And uh, life just deals things. And with my mother, uh, seeing her start not being able to walk as a young child, young kid, and having to pick up the slack and pick up things at home uh, because of that, that was just another thing. So I like to say that life prepared me for ultra marathons more than anything else, uh, more than like getting out and doing miles. Okay, so tell us when you fell in love with running, because you were a skier first. So I, 
I, I started Nordic ski racing in high school because they finally had a boys team and it was finally a sport that resonated more with me. I, I dabbled a little bit. I, tr I ran, I think, eighth grade track and that was about it. Um, running wasn't something I enjoyed doing. I actually really hated it. And then uh, one summer, my Nordic ski coach said, in, in order to get in shape, you're going to have to pick something to do for dryland training during the summer. And he said, you can either bike, roller ski, or run. And I couldn't afford bike. I couldn't afford roller skis. Um, in fact, I think I was still using a, an old women's bike that my dad had welded a bar across so that it would look a little bit more like a boy's bike. <laughs> and um, the only thing I had was running. And so each day I would go out and go a mile and a half, turn around on the highway that I ran to, and then come back. And each day I got a little bit further. I'd get another quarter mile down the road. By the end of the summer, I was running eight miles, uh, and I had all the problems that all of you who, when you start running, I had the runner's trots, I had the side aches, I had all these things where I'm like, this is so stupid, I hate this, but I was motivated because I wanted to get in shape for Nordic skiing, and that was my, my first love. All right, who here has read the book, Eat and Run? Okay, all right. I have to bring up Dusty, because he's such a reoccurring thing, uh, theme in the book. Um, so talk about how this character in your life who became a very good friend and paced you so many races, talk about how his influence shaped the kind of runner that you became at a young age. Um, well, like I mentioned, I grew up backwoods Minnesotan. I, I grew up more redneck than hippie. And so all of a sudden I started, uh, I don't know, hanging out as well as becoming friends with these individuals who grew their hair long. Um, they, they ate things like whole grain bread and uh, parsley and garlic, and we're always talking about, like my buddy Hippie Dan, uh, who is baking bread at the Third Street Bakery. Uh, I started hanging out with these individuals in my late high school and early college years, and again, people I never thought I would be hanging out with or caught dead with. And then there's a, these individuals like Dusty, who I knew him from high school and Nordic ski racing at Junior Olympics. He was the one who was getting in trouble all the time. He was the one who, um, you know, was just going against the grain. And I think what I learned from those individuals, uh, like a lot of things in life, you, you absorb uh, the certain attributes that you might not normally, and you get introduced to things that you would never think about. And that's really, if it weren't for Dusty, guys like Hippie Dan, um, these individuals that kind of introduced ultra running, this concept of running 50 miles at a shot, just seemed like crazy to me. And so even though somebody who really loved running, uh, at that point I was starting to love it and enjoy it, it, it wasn't really my, my first love. And I think it, was the, it took those individuals to do that and really kind of show me that um, there was some kind of value there. And I think my, my recommendation to all of you is um, maybe you don't want to hang out with those individuals all the time, but it's good to kind of open up our scope of um, viewpoints and individuals. And I think that's what ultra running and running has done for me more than anything is really open. So hang out with a guy like Dusty again. In high school, um, wasn't something my parents would have been proud of, but um, I did it in small doses. <laughs> well, you mentioned the hippie Dan. You mentioned the parsley. Do we have any plant-based eaters in the crowd? Any vegan people in the crowd? Okay. They exist here in Indiana. They exist in the Midwest. <laughs> so we have to touch on it a little bit. I know I personally have received messages from people 
in this room who said, you know, the way Scott talks about diet and how that has helped change his life has really affected my own life. So right around the time you started competing pretty intensely in your first Western States, you took on a vegan diet. So can you talk about how that kind of um, changed your recovery and, and just how you fueled for running? So um, surprisingly, I didn't change my diet to improve my running or to you know, develop these special powers or to have an extra edge over my competitors. I actually became more interested in changing my diet for health reasons. Seeing my mother with multiple sclerosis, working in hospitals, um, treating patients as a physical therapist, it really just started to hit me, particularly when I was finishing up my physical therapy degree. I actually started thinking, maybe I should quit physical therapy school and go to be a naturopath because here I am trying to fix these patients and heal them, and yet they're smoking two packs a day. They're eating the crap that my mom was being fed at a nursing home and seeing what in hospitals what we feed our patients who are trying to get better. And so it really hit me uh, when I started reading Dr. Andrew Weil's book, Spontaneous Healing and Eight Weeks to Optimal Health. And he was this, um, again, one of these individuals, I didn't know him personally, I just read his books, but he was one of these, he was an MD who thought differently about health and wellness and how, and medicine and its role in healing individuals. And that's really what got me inspired. So his books got me thinking about becoming more vegetarian. So I started eating less meat, um, leaning more that way. And then it was a book called Mad Cowboy that really transitioned and changed my life. Besides the individuals like my buddy Hippie Dan and, and those that I knew, these few individuals in Minnesota that weren't uh, eating meat and potatoes all the time or hunting and fishing like myself. His books um, and then Mad Cowboy was really the, the impetus. And Mad Cowboy is a book about a third generation cattle rancher from Montana who went vegan. I'm thinking to myself, okay, if this third generation cattle rancher can go vegan, a backwoods Minnesota hunting boy can, can definitely go vegan. So it was a real impetus for me to, to go towards that direction and it really inspired me. And then as I started eating that way, it made all the more sense from an athletic standpoint. I, I started recovering better, but my first goal was to be healthier. I didn't want to have a chronic disease. I, I saw it so much around my life that I wanted to get away from that. And even if it was gonna help just a small amount, I wanted to do that. And that was really the main reason. Then I started noticing all these other effects of it. Um, but it really was the health. And for those of you who are out there, like, I think a lot of us want, who wants to run till they're 90? I mean, most of the people in the audience. So um, hopefully our bodies can do that. I mean, hopefully not, we're not bone on bone due to traumatic, because um, arthritis is not caused by running, those of you who don't know that. but. Um, <laughs> We, we should, I mean, a lot of us want to stay running. We don't want to maybe win races, or maybe we don't need to run 100 milers, but we want to stay healthy. And the best way for me to do that was to change my diet because I was eating McDonald's and fast food four or five times a week in college. I mean, I was, I was not a model, uh, <laughs> a model athlete by any stretch. So for me, it was a, a real transition and a big change. Well, he says, like, we maybe don't need to win races, but you've won quite a few races. So we... T it, your first Western states, you recap this in the book, and you're talking about um, how you're thinking, you know, when it gets hard, did I, should I have done this? Should I, should I have, like, taken on this vegan diet? But it did work. And, and in your first Western states, I want to just jump right into the Western states thing because I think that's probably a race that most people here know about. Uh, you had a lot of naysayers saying, like, who is this Minnesota guy thinking he's going to win the race? And I think in life in general, when we have naysayers about something we want to do, 
it pushes us and motivates us to go do that thing we want to do. So did that fuel you to go win your first Western States? By the way, um, before I answer that question, how many people have run Western States or started or completed part of it in the audience? Anybody? A hand up? Okay, there's Jump a couple. Jump up and yeah. down. Where are we at? I want to see. So you can run, I just want to say this, you can run Western States 100 living in Indiana. You can do it from Minnesota. Um, I know it's hard to get in. It takes five, six years now, I think, to, to get into the race. But um, my whole thing, I was training in the dead heart of winter in Minnesota. So if you can imagine a day like today and even colder, I would lace up my shoes and go out and train because I had that motivation of, I was doing well at some races that I started entering across the country, but there are a lot of people that thought you had to be from California to win Western States. And so one of my heroes, who is of my peers at the time, Mike Morton, those of you who don't know Mike, you should look him up. He actually broke, broke my 24-hour uh, road record on uh, a few years ago. And Mike was a hero of mine because in 1997, he was the first male outside of the state of California who won Western States 100. And he did that from the East Coast. He was... Um, I believe he was an Army Delta um, Special Forces guy, and he was a big inspiration. I never got to race against him. Um, in fact, I haven't met him in person, but I always read the ultra running magazines and saw this guy. He like kicked butt on the Californians, and I'm like, I want to do that. I want to be from Minnesota and show that a Midwesterner can win that race. Um, so I think being told that you can't do something can be a strong motivator. I don't think negativity should always um, push our buttons and cause us to do things, but um, negativity or maybe uh, a drive to prove somebody wrong can be a strong motivator. It's, it's uh, powerful. So for me, um, I definitely wanted to show everyone out west that a Midwesterner could uh, win the race. Seven times. Training on hills, by the way, you know, I know maybe they're a little bigger in northern Minnesota, but I would go and do repeats of a hill that was not even a mile long, thinking to myself, I've got to get ready for these, you know, three, four mile long uphills. And uh, it was really hard. And so you can do it in other places. I think uh, Casey uh, Leichtig from uh, Nebraska is showing that. I mean, it's, it's really cool to see that that's changed. And, uh, you know, the Californians don't stand a chance now. And if you live in Indianapolis, it is flat, but Crown Hill has a really good hill. Does anybody ever run on that hill in Crown Hill? I do. It's big. Yeah. Repeats are a good thing. Yeah. I mean, that's like mentally, I think you do see so many strong runners come out of the Midwest, um, partly because we deal with temperatures like today and colder. Um, you know, just if you look at the Minnesotans that I would look up to, you know, Steve Placentias, these are names a lot of you have never heard because they're not on the internet probably, or like way, way back in the dark uh, annals of the web, uh, you can find these names. But, uh, you know, Barney Klecker, these, these legends of Minnesota, they, just strong names. And then, of course, modern day, you know, like Kara Goucher, she, she went to high school 20 miles from me. Um, Gary Bjorkland, they're just such a strong tradition in Minnesota. And I think partly because you have to put up with really tough conditions. And when you have a hill that's only, I don't know how, how Crown Hill is what? Is it a quarter, half mile I don't know. long? Glenn, you tell me. I don't know. <laughs> quarter mile. So when you do that, you know, who knows how many times you have to do it to get ready for hilly races. Um, it makes you tough. And so I think you can use that motivation every time I went out and trained on the snowmobile trails or I would go out and do repeats of that less than one mile hill. Um, again, it was just that strong motivator, and you've got to have those things, especially when it's 10 degrees or 5 degrees out. And I would be thinking to myself, I should be skiing now. This is like skiing weather, not running weather. Well, you mentioned the pre-internet days, which you were kind of like when you were getting big on the scene here, it was pre-internet days. I'm trying to think when social media exploded. It was probably 2008-ish or something. 
So I'm just thinking as you mentioned that, how do you think that's changed the running culture for good or worse? It is pretty, I know I'm dating myself. <laughs> I'm like one of the old guys now, it seems like. But I've been running ultras now for 25 years. But when I ran my first Western States, that was like the era of Netscape, like the real early days of the... <laughs> I don't do, even do know Do people what even know what Netscape is, like a browser? But yeah, some people do. Yeah, they're with me still. So... Um, Again, or the ultralist, those of you who would follow the ultralist, like that was the way ultra runners communicated besides ultra running magazine. I mean, that was otherwise, like you'd wait for that every month to come out and that's how you'd read about the races, you'd get race reports. But it was really interesting. It has shaped the sport for sure. I think um, back then you could actually train and uh, show up at a race and your competitors wouldn't know what you're doing, um, which... I think, word to the wise, all you young guys and gals, um, don't post all your training on social media. Sometimes it's actually good to show up and, you know, kick ass and get a, basically a little unexpected, uh, uh, basically, uh, performance out of sometimes. So I think it's, it's been great for the sport in so many ways. I think sometimes people can almost live too much on it. It's really easy, easy I think, to talk big on the Internet. But when it comes time to like proving things with results or showing up and being a good person, being a good sportswoman or sportsman, um, that's the issue that I think sometimes isn't always great. But uh, I don't want to be one of the, I've, I've always said this, I don't want to be one of the old guys or gals that like complains about the new generation or complains that, oh, when I was running back then, we didn't have those things. And because I was, you know, my first couple ultra marathons, goo and energy gels w were just coming out. So cliff bars um, hadn't been launched yet. You just had power bars. Um, so even though I'm a cliff athlete, I'll mention some of these other companies, but it was a different era. And people did actually used to carry army canteens when they ran ultras back then. Even, you know, this is the mid 90s, early 90s. Um, so it really has like changed not only on the internet, and technology, but also how we use things and uh, the, the equipment, which is very quite simply, you don't need a lot, which I think is great about the sport, but it's really changed. And I think you have to be comfortable with those changes. So I, I kind of say it's, it's been really fun to watch that evolution. And the sport's always gonna change and don't be afraid of it. Yeah. That, that means all of you old timers who are older than me, like, you know, welcome the changes, I think. You gotta, you gotta roll with it. Get yourself an Instagram account, guys. Um, you mentioned being a good person and a good sportsman, and that's something people know about you. When you would win these big races, you'd get your sleeping bag and you'd camp out and cheer on every last runner. Talk about why you made that decision, because that's hard to do after you just ran 100 miles yourself. Well, for me, uh, it kind of happened by accident because I actually didn't have any money or didn't, I didn't have a reservation basically in Auburn. So when I finished, um, when I finished the race, I started realizing, whoa, we didn't plan. Because those of you who don't know Western states, you start in Squaw Valley, you run over the mountains, it's a point-to-point -point course, and you finish in the town of Auburn. And I didn't even really think about getting reservations in Auburn because for whatever reason, I was like, oh, yeah, I need a hotel in Auburn. So I just didn't have a place to stay, and by the time I finished, um, which is fairly early compared to some people, because um, some people are out there running all night long, but I finished early enough where um, I just thought, well, we've got sleeping bags, let's just roll it out in the track. And for me, it was a great way to like, you know, congratulate my friends who were coming in, and I would stay up a good portion of the night, get a few hours, and then wake up again. And I started doing that as a tradition every year after that, and it, it was just a way to be a part of the community. And 
again, one thing that I love about the sport of running and ultra running is it is a community. I mean, that's why all these people are here. Um, that's why we're holding this event at a brew pub, I think, is because uh, people love to hang out and talk. As much as we like to be these introverted, maybe um, do, it, do it ourselves, um, you know, individuals that want to just spend a lot of time running solo, we, we come together as a community. And that's what I loved about the sport of ultra running because I loved camping out at races when I'd show up at races around the country. It's almost like a little mini Woodstock where people come together, they like camp out at night and they run the race. And then after the race, everyone, you know, cracks out their beer and they just hang out and cheer on people as they finish. And that's what really attracted me to the sport. And it's kept me in the sport. And I just love that aspect of it. And I hope it continues. As much as technology takes it in other directions, there's a real community vibe. So for me, it was because I wanted to encourage people just like I got encouraged. And I think that's the beauty. You don't have to be somebody who has hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. You can be that individual who introduces a friend, a family member, the person, uh, the coworker, the, the neighbor down the street who sees you running at weird hours, like, why the hell are you up at 5 a.m. running and training? And I think we all have that impact, and that's what I love about the sport. And so for me, I just want to be able to pass that on. Um, again, because I love the sport and I love the people involved. I just, there are not a lot of people that would hang out that long after winning the race. So I just it is, want, yeah, it's a long time. I really want to recognize that. I'm going to read this because it's a quote from one of your books and I don't want to butcher it. Um, and I want to go a little deep with it here. Being crowned a champion was good for both my mind and my soul, but it wasn't enough. So why was it so good? And then what was enough? Well, I, th I think a lot of times I, th I guess maybe I'll describe this, because those of you who haven't um, won a race, it probably can be hard for you to imagine, like, what, what, why would you get sick of winning races? Like, why would you get sick of, like, you know, just um, doing things that you set out to do and keep doing it? But after a while, um, it was hard to have the ego again. And I think, for me, I loved the sport, but I also loved getting out and talking about and inspiring people and being at events where I wasn't running. And so sometimes I had this real, like, I loved it, but yet at the other point, I was like, I was getting burnt out. I basically was getting to the point where my body felt great, but my mind was kind of um, just not fully in it as much. And then I think part of it is it's great to have, like, you have to have ego to win, but what happens when that ego and that drive dwindle um, and after you've put yourself in the hurt locker, those of you who've like, you don't even have to win, but after you do so many hundred milers and after you put yourself through that many marathons or half marathons, you're kind of like, can I just go out for fun and run? And so I was basically losing the fun and the passion and the things that I loved most about running. And that's what really freaked me out. I kind of started to, I don't know if you call it a midlife running crisis, but it was something where I was really having difficulty with that. And I, I went through a divorce and I went through some changes, uh, life changes that were really big too. And it was one of those things where I, you know, is my heart in it? And that's, that was what was really tricky. And that's what I think for me, I needed to find that passion again. Yeah, you talk about finding the joy in running. And, and one thing that you're known for is when you went down to the Copper Canyon and you ran with the Tara Humara. I'm going to say that wrong, I know. Um, did I say it wrong? I mean, again, in, in the Spanish, they say it so fast, but they say taramata. Oh, <laughs> That's all right. They, I wasn't going to try that. I wasn't going to try that. Um, but this, these, are the most, these are some of the best runners in the world. And when you hear people talk about it, it's because they have 
the joy. They're running because they love running. And so I think in America, sometimes we get away from that because we want to run so fast. We want to break three hours in the marathon. We want to do this. And then we obsess and we kind of lose, like, why are we doing it in the first place? So how do we, how do we keep that? Yeah, and I think that's the tricky thing. That's one of the reasons I went down. And those of you who maybe didn't catch that when you read Born to Run, she's referring to a trip. Um, I'm sure a lot of the audience or most of the audience has read Born to Run. But um, Chris writes about the reason I went down there was to race against the Taramaran and, you know, go down and, like, show the Taramaran who's boss. And, and Caballo Blanco is, you know, having these bets placed on the side. Like, the townspeople were like, oh, is this Venado guy going to beat the Taramarans? And they really wanted to make it all about that. But in the end, it was more about learning from the Taramarans. And the reason I went on that trip is I wanted to reignite some of that passion with running and do it via traveling. So I actually was down there on vacation, not expecting I would have to like defend some title or race really hard. And the Taramarans were kind of the same thing. Like they were down there because they just do it as life. And they're not wired to run for competition. They don't run to race. And I think that is really tricky nowadays for a lot of people because you have things like Strava and social sharing of workouts, which is great motivation. But on the other hand, you can lose sight of like what's the, the big picture is to get out and enjoy moving your body. And exercise can be fun. And those are the things I hope to do, pass down to my children. I don't care if they run any race, but as long as they're out exercising and having fun, I think is the key thing. Because in the US here, we have a major issue with kids don't exercise, adults don't exercise. So um, you have to be out there for fun first and foremost, I think. And then it helps to have the other motivation. but. I would say to a lot of people, if you're losing that passion, if you're losing the fun, um, you have to do things differently. And so for me, I think traveling somewhere different and learning from the Taramarans, not maybe about a race, travel can be a great way. Um, connecting with other groups. Um, sometimes it's good to ratchet it down if you're an ultra runner. Get on the roads and run a marathon again. Run a half marathon. Um, Find some goals that sound um, horrible to you at first. Um, that you're like, why would I want to go back to the roads when I run, can run trails? Um, but I think it's good to mix it up. And that's why I went to races like Badwater. That's why I went to races like Spartathlon, even though they sound you know, masochistic and like 153 miles on pavement through the Greek countryside doesn't sound like fun. But I wanted to like experiment and find new things. So I would suggest to people, if you can't, if you're not finding the passion as much, um, mix it up. The other thing I would say is volunteer. Um, lately, the past few years, I've been getting involved more with the blind and visually impaired community and guiding at events. And I guided um, the past, actually my past two marathons have been guiding. I guided at the Cal International Marathon for the Blind Marathon Championships. And I also guided at New York City Marathon. I'd never been to New York City Marathon from the uh, racing standpoint. I'd watched the race before. And doing it while guiding was just a great experience. And so even though my, people might think, oh, you got to run it on your own first, I found it to be um, a great experience to reignite that passion by doing it with somebody who can't see. And I had to explain everything to them. So I was watching and feeling and hearing things that I probably wouldn't have heard because I was passing that on to my, my guided uh, runner that I was running with who's visually impaired. So sometimes I think volunteering and being on the other side of running is important too. I think a lot of times we think, no, I gotta run for myself, but volunteer at that aid station, volunteer at that event. Um, a lot of us who run ultras for 100 milers, we have to volunteer. Some races have requirements or we have to do trail work. And uh, don't look at that as a bad opportunity. Look at that as a positive and, and something to reignite that passion. 
and don't forget the first part of his answer. He was telling you guys to all sign up for a 5K. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I Do mean, something uh, <laughs> scary. I still have a, I did a 5K a few years ago in Colorado after just moving there. And uh, when you run at 5,000 feet at 5K pace, it's, uh, it's, it's like a lung burner. It's just like crazy. So um, it's good to do those things once in a while. And I think uh, take it on the roads. Those of you who are road runners, get out on the trails. Do something different. Do that 10K trail race or that half marathon and really expand your horizons a bit. All right, I'm going to move on from Western States, I swear. But one last question with Western States. Which of your wins or maybe a time that you paced uh, is most meaningful to you? Well, I'd have to say it's kind of a toss-up because um, those of you read the book know in 2009 I tried to go back. And this was a sign that um, my time at Western States 100 was probably coming to an end. Um, because at about halfway, um, and I, I say this is meaningful, it's not like, again, meaningful, I'll, I'll say my most meaningful from a performance standpoint, but I think most um, enlightening was, I'd always wanted to swim in, uh, those of you who've gone across uh, at the bottom of Deadwood Canyon, before you go up and do the Devil's Thumb Climb, there's this amazing branch, uh, it's called the Middle Fork of the American River, um, and it's an offshoot of that. And I'd always wanted to go swim down there during race to like cool off. And finally, in 2009, I did because I knew my race was over. Like, I knew my, just, my head wasn't in it. I was forcing myself out there to go run Western States again and, and try to keep winning. And my last win was 2005. And I went for a swim in that river. And for the rest of the race, um, I just went along to the different aid stations and hung out with the aid station workers and the volunteers, people that I had seen while racing really hard and, you know, sometimes just finishing puking or sometimes, you know, laying down eight-minute miles, didn't have time to barely talk to people. And it was, um, it was special as much as it was gut-wrenching and painful. But uh, there were a lot of, like, things that I experienced on that run and doing that and going for that swim and just realizing, like, why am I out here? Um, there's other things that I could be doing right now in other races. And so that was a real realization. But I have to say my 2004 win, of course, because I set the record that year. Um, I'd always tried finishing on the track in Auburn in the daylight. Um, and I remember seeing those pictures of Mike Morton finishing and when he set the record at 15 hours and 40 minutes. And I thought to myself, I want to finish on the track in the daylight. And I know some of you are like, I've seen the daylight the next day, but <laughs> um, I wanted to see the daylight on the same day that I started and just watch that sun setting as I was finishing. And it, that was um, an electrifying day and uh, something super special. Those of you, um, there's a film coming out on Dave Mackey. Um, those of you who don't know Dave Mackey's story, he's a recent amputee. And I talk about him in my book. Um, he pushed me to that record that year in 2004. And Dave um, had an accident actually in 2015 when I was on the Appalachian Trail and uh, lost his uh, leg below the knee. Um, didn't know it at the time that he was going to lose it due to a freak accident out while running in the hills of Boulder and the mountains of Boulder. So um, there's a, a new movie coming out on him that's being released actually in the next month. So you might check that out to just kind of connect the dots. And Dave pushed me to that win, and that day was um, super special in a lot of ways. But every year I got a little closer to that record, and then finally 2004, I, I broke it. So. so you talk about 2009 when you lay in that creek, and if you have read the book, it is, it is, you, you wrote that very well to visualize you doing that. Um, when you knew it was time to maybe not run so competitively, how did you come to that? Like, how did you accept that? in your heart after you've been racing competitively for so long? Well, I think 
the answer to that is I didn't accept it. <laughs> I tried to go and do, um, and Jenny will attest to this because she gives me the hardest time. Uh, Jenny is like the hardest life partner in a lot of ways and also the best life partner because they, they test you and they ask you those tough questions that are hard to sometimes stomach. But she, she saw me go to races after that in you know, 2010, 2011, 2012. I tried going to Leadville in 2013 and she could tell something was missing. She was like, your, your head's not in it, your heart's not in it. And I, it was hard for me to struggle with that because I knew I had accomplished a lot, but I still felt there was something left, something that I could do. And I think it, it, you have to go through that stage of denial as an athlete, as a person with a career, um, whatever it is, like relationship-wise, you get to a point where, okay, I can't, I can't be in denial anymore. Like, there's something's wrong here. And so for me, it was finally like, going to, West, uh, to uh, Leadville in 2013 and Jenny giving me a hard time. She's like, why are you letting all these people pass you at the end? And I just kind of like, not gave up, but just was fine with finishing top 10. And I know a lot of people are like, Scott, that's a diss on everybody who struggles to like, you know, top 10 would be amazing at Leadville. But Jenny being the, the hard ass that she is, as well as the honest um, life partner, she's just like, what are you doing out here? Like, why are you letting, you know, why? I don't see any drive in you. And I think that was the realization then of like, okay, I need to, I need to like reprioritize or find something different. And that's where the impetus for the Appalachian Trail came out. We all need a Jenny in our life to just call us out when we need to be called out. <laughs> uh, before we get to the Appalachian Trail, I want to talk about Badwater just a little bit because that's a big deal. Can you share with everybody the Badwater 135? It's known as the toughest foot race. Can you share with everybody what that is? And I, he went in competed in Badwater two weeks, two weeks after winning Western States in 2005. So talk to everybody about that race and what that decision looked like. Well, when I was in ultra running and competing a lot, I, I always used to just laugh at Badwater. Like those people, something's wrong with those people. Like why do you want to run 135 miles on pavement? So it's completely on pavement. There's no lick, there's not a lick of trail. Um, you see all these beautiful mountains around you and you never get to climb any of them and you're on this, you know, valley road just cooking away at 120 plus degrees and the, I guess the real reason was they, they touted their race as the toughest foot race on earth and I'm like, you know what, I got to go see what this thing's all about. Um, I'd watched the documentaries that were available at the time. I saw the crazy people taking, you know, their exhaust from their dryers um, at home, their clothes dryers, and just like spraying that in the face as they'd be on their treadmills at home. And I'm like, this just sounds stupid. So I had to see what it was all about. And I was at that time when I was like, you know, I want to switch things up. And I thought, why not just do it right after winning Western States? So in 2015, I won Western States turned around less than two weeks later, ran Badwater, set the course record there. It wasn't easy. In fact, at 70 miles, um, I was puking my guts out. Everybody assumes that a lot of top finishers and ultras or people that win have great races from start to finish, and that's hardly the case. I was completely cooked at mile 70 and thought for sure my race was over. Um, and then I finally just started walking in and that was like one of those races where I came back like against all odds and it showed me that there was even when I thought things were like at the darkest deepest moment I could re resurrect myself and come out of that and that was a, a huge change and Badwater Because it was so different because I had to go in there and respect the conditions. I did the same thing um, 
that I'd heard all the old timers did. You know, you wear pants. Um, I had specially designed pants that Brooks apparel team made for me. I did everything that all the old timers recommended. I wasn't going to go and disrespect the conditions and disrespect the race. And in the end, the race just like whooped me to the point where I thought it was over. And then at mile 70, I don't want to ruin the whole story. You can read more about it. But I, I just started walking again and gradually drinking a little bit and then started jogging and then started running. And then to the point where I just, I had a complete turnaround. And that was like really enlightening to me as an athlete. At Western States, I'd have a, one or two low points in the, the 100 miles. But for Badwater, it, it felt like I was so destroyed, so like there was no way I could come back from that. And it really taught me like the next level, just when I thought I couldn't go further. And that's, that's why I think we do all of the things we do, half marathons, marathons. We get to that point when we don't think we can do what we do, and then somehow we find that source of strength. And that's when the magic happens. And that's, that's what Badwater taught me. More than like cooking in the desert and feeling like you know my brain was on fire all the time, um, it taught me that I could come from the the lowest of lows and still pull myself out of it. And that's, that's what I love about 100 milers. 5Ks, you don't have that opportunity. You either have it or you don't. Um, it, they're over in like just a blink of an eye. But I love the fact like in ultras, you can go from like being past. I was five miles behind. I mean, you can imagine being five miles behind in a race. And that's how, that's how things can change in races. And so um, I was able to come back from that and, yeah, just uh, go 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 places I didn't think I could go. That's what I love about it. All right, so was it the toughest foot race you've ever done? Um, I'll say this, like, I don't want to belittle it, but uh, <laughs> it's probably some of the toughest conditions to run in, but it's not really, I mean, I'm going to say this, it's not a running race, and I think that's why they call it a foot race, because you end up walking a lot. Um, just due to the nature of how hot it is, I, I was trying to run 10-minute miles drinking two 40-ounce or two 20-ounce bottles, so 40 ounces an hour, which is hard to do just to empty your stomach. Sometimes I was pushing um, 60 ounces an hour and still could not keep enough fluids to cool my body down. So I, I think it's, it's a tough um, foot race, but I think there's tougher out there, and that's why I had to go do hard rock after that because it's... Um, it was just the, the conditions are very unique, and it, it becomes more of a survival race. So I'd say it's a survival foot race more than a running race. And that's why races like Spartathlon were a bit more interesting to me because at 100 degrees, you can still push your body. Same thing at Western States. It can be 105. When you start getting up to 120-plus degrees, you just can't keep your body cool enough at that point. Yeah, it sounds miserable. <laughs> and I, but there's also, there's beauty in it. And that's what I, I try to write about in both books, uh, both in North and Eat and Run. Like, I know it sounds miserable, but there's beauty in the miserable. And those, everyone can attest to that. Like, even if you're a new runner and you've started out running and you're like, it's like pure hell from start to finish. And like, you know, you have the side aches and you have the runner's trots. Like, but there's still something there and something gets us back out there. So I like to say there's beauty in the like miserable, the dark discomfort that we feel. Um, and that's, that's where the magic happens. For sure. I mean, I'm sure, uh, raise your hand if you've ever cried when you cross the finish line of a marathon or half marathon, any distance, yeah. Or if you cried during the race. During the race. <laughs> like, during races, plenty, plenty of people cry during the races. It can be brutal. I've for sure done both. Um, let's talk about mental toughness though, because that's somewhere you have to go when you are an ultra runner, when you're a runner at all. And so, you know, you can be the most gifted, talented runner out there, but if your mental game is not in it, 
you won't succeed as well as you could have. So what separates someone like you who is winning and someone who might, you know, fall back a little bit if their mental game isn't right there? I think mental toughness is everything almost. I, you know, there's an old saying in ultra running that uh, running ultra marathons is 95% mental and the other 5% is mental too. <laughs> so um, you do have to, you have to drink, you have to, you know, get enough electrolytes, you have to get enough carbohydrate, but in the end, uh, you have to train, you have to do your long runs, you have to prepare your body enough, but how many times have we showed up at a starting line, and everybody can attest to this, you don't have to be an ultra runner, we show up to a starting line, and every, you know, a lot of those people around you have trained the same way, they've done the preparation, they they're, they're doing a lot of the same things, but what you have to be able to do is you have to execute. And execution is, uh, I don't want to say everything, but being able to do that in a race environment or somewhere like a, a real challenging moment, you have to be able to access um, hidden sources of strength. And that's, that's where I think a lot of people um, sometimes I don't want to say give up, but they, they don't think they have that. And each and every one of you in the audience has that ability. You don't have to be the best athlete. It's, it's not genetic. In fact, I think it's the life, the life molding that happens. Like for me, and I don't mean uh, green mold. I mean uh, the molding and malleableness of life, how it can really shape you and really push us. And having difficulties and challenge in life, prepare you, I think, more than anything. So people that have military backgrounds, people with addiction backgrounds, um, people that have went through major trauma in their life or, you know, family relationship stuff, they're the best ultra runners, I think. They're the best survivalists sometimes because they take those experiences as rather being ripped down and, you know, demoralized, they come back stronger. And so I think we all can access those strengths. Um, we limit them a lot right up here before we have an opportunity for it to filter down to the legs and the things that need us to propel our body forward. Um, so yes, you have to be a smart athlete. Um, that helps too. You can't go out there and think, okay, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be just mentally tough. There are these individuals who are like, I don't care how hard I hurt. I'm, I don't care if my stomach goes bad, I'm still gonna you know, do this. And at some point they realize like, it's pretty hard to keep going when you're puking your guts out or you can't get any fluids down and you're totally dehydrated. So um, it, there comes a limit, but mental toughness is, is so critical and we all can access it. It's just, you just have to have those moments. And the best way I think you can do that to probably answer your question best, put yourself in the hurt locker, put yourself in difficult situations. Now I'm not saying, um, go out and have a major life change uh, purposefully, or, or don't go out and mess up at a race purposely, but um, go out and do that hard training run. Go out and do something that's gonna put you in that situation where you've gotta be mentally tough, and that's, that's how you get through things. I mean, that's why they have boot camps and special forces training, because you have to be able to access, you have to be able to access that when time requires you, or a situation requires you, and you, can, you can't really prepare for every little piece. You've gotta be able to just okay, it's on or it's not on. You talk about when you're in those dark moments in your races and the Appalachian Trail, you think about your mom and how sick she was. And you think about Jenny, your wife, when she went through a traumatic miscarriage with an ectopic pregnancy. Um, how does channeling that, those experiences in your life, seeing your loved ones go through those experiences, how does that serve you when you need to dig deep? 
It's huge. In fact, I, I recommend to people, you know, a lot of people ask, uh, how, do you, how do you get through the dark moments in a race or a challenge? And for me, it is drawing on the strength of others. I, I would think a lot about my mom. I mean, here I am. I'm like, I have my legs. I can move them. I can run 100 miles. Like, my mom can't even stand up. Um, she can't even swallow. I mean, she's choking on her own saliva. She has to have her food pureed. Like, and I think having perspective is really huge. And for me, it, it's drawing on that perspective when I feel like I'm like whining to myself or thinking to myself like, oh, I can't go on. I think about the individuals in my life who have pushed through severe adversity and, and realized like, you know what? Life isn't that tough. And I chose to do this to myself. That's a crazier thing. It's like, I think that's the hardest thing for those of us who run races or you know, do triathlons or do crazy endurance sports. Um, we electively choose to do those things. So I think there's value. There's a reason why we choose to do that because life today has become quite easy. So we choose to put ourselves in the hurt locker voluntarily. And so I think we have to embrace it. It's hard though, I'm, I'm like everyone else. I mean, 25 years of ultra running has gotten me tougher. But there are those moments where I'm like, I could be at home sitting on a couch right now and uh, you know, just relaxing. And when I was on the AT, there were so many times like, I just can't wait to get home to lie down on my couch and not move my body. And, but at the same time, when we look back at it, we're like, whoa, that was an amazing experience. Or you know, even though after the race I said I'd never do that again, you, you, you remember those times, you're like, wow, that was, that was magic, that was amazing. Like, even though I was suffering, I was crying, I was like, had every emotion under the sun, that's when we, I think, find our true self. And that's when we, we rip our lay and we just um, take away all those layers and find out what we're made of and who we really are. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? Uh, right now, I'd say have kids. <laughs> I thought ultra running was tough, but, um, and doing the Appalachian Trail, but not sleeping for like six months, uh, getting eight hours straight um, in six months, that's a lot harder. So those of you who have kids or have done uh, time in terms of raising children, like I'd have to say that's, that's gotta be the hardest thing. Right now I have a 10 month old and a two and a half year old, so we're in the thick of it. But um, athletically, the Appalachian Trail was by far the hardest thing. And I, I knew that that's probably why I saved it to the end of my career. And that's why I was searching for that next thing um, and it took me a while to get to that place because I don't know if I would have had the ability to do that if I was in my 20s um, mentally. And so I think wisdom and knowledge happens with experience. My body probably would have felt better every morning and when I was uh, 25 versus 41, but there was something like I felt all my old buddies were like, wait to do that, you know, after you've done your 100 milers, like you'll never run 100 milers the same, like go and do, you know, the shorter stuff. And I love how like, those of you who aren't ultra runners and you think short stuff is 100 milers, but compared to like multi-days and 24, 48-hour races, things like that, it, it does seem short. So it's, it's interesting. Perspective is everything. Let's talk about the Appalachian Trail. You did that in 2015. You went north. Why did you go north? Well, I, I was really into the experience for aesthetic reasons. I mentioned earlier like traveling and going to the Copper Canyon um, was something I really wanted to do. Um, I didn't always do things perfectly. Um, and my buddy Carl, um, those of you who've read the book, he basically thought I was going backwards. He's like, dude, all the records, the recent records, you know, past three records have been set going southbound. 
why not get all the, the, the hard stuff, the really hard stuff done early up in the Northeast, so the White Mountains, Maine, uh, Vermont. And I just love this idea of going northbound like all the other thru-hikers. I wanted to see other thru-hikers. When you go southbound, you basically start later in the season. And you'll see thru-hikers, but because you're going in opposite directions, um, there's maybe a couple hundred people that go southbound. And a regular thru-hiker who might take four to six months months to do that, you would n I would never get that chance to, you know, hike and maybe jog with, you know, another thru-hiker for two miles. So for me, I wanted to have that experience of walking north, just like the first thru-hiker, um, Earl Schaefer, who gets credit for first thru-hiking the trail. His whole concept was he was going to start with spring in the south and then walk with spring as far as he could until summer happened. And I just love that idea of, like, following the season as it crept up. Now, when you run it in 46 days, you're not going to be able to run with or move with spring. Um, so I had to basically come at the tail end of spring. But it was this concept of going northbound and, and doing it traditionally as other thru-hikers and, and having those experiences with other people. Plus, finishing on Katahdin. Any, who's been to Springer Mountain? Anybody in the audience? There's some people here, sure. Springer or Katahdin to finish the AT? Katahdin by far, right? Like, I mean, nothing against Springer Mountain going southbound, but... Katahdin is an amazing mountain, and uh, it's, it's unlike any other thing. And I got to see it on a beautiful day, but um, that northbound trip is, is the way to go. Again, it's probably not the fastest, but it's interesting. The last two records set, including myself, have been going northbound. So. Okay, so tell everybody, in case they're not well-versed on the Appalachian Trail, how many miles it was, where you start, where you finish, just for anybody who doesn't know. Um, which, by the way, I, who has the Pathfinder... Uh, in the audience, who can raise their hand? There's a Pathfinder with a ton of AT stickers on it. I think it's a Pathfinder. There's, okay, I've got something special for you after, so come up here. Jenny's got a, got a special gift for you. Um, uh, it was great to see so many people um, in, in the audience you know, know some things about the AT. You guys aren't actually that far from the Appalachian Trail, so um, get out there and, and check it out. But it's 2,189 miles, at least the year I did it. It always changes, give or take a mile or two. Um, based on how they reroute the course. But it's probably the most historical footpath on the planet. It starts outside of Atlanta, Georgia, goes all the way north um, to Katahdin. And the whole concept when it was really envisioned was the founders wanted to connect and link the whole eastern seaboard by a single footpath. And they wanted to follow the spine of the Appalachian Trail, some of the oldest mountains in the country. And it was this concept of making sure that people um, were connected to these communities while they were still out in nature. And I love that concept of being, and the ET is a, a very social trail and just super special that way. So um, it's also one of the most historical, and I had only seen six miles of the trail. So I'm sorry, Jenny had only seen six. I had seen uh, 18 miles of the trail. Where is Jenny? Is Jenny, where are you? Oh, I think we, she's around the corner. Here. I want to bring I want to bring Jenny in here about this. Has anybody ever crewed someone doing 50, 100 milers, anything? Raise your hand if you've been on a support. Come crew. on, there's got to be more people. Yeah, yeah I see a lot of people over here. Okay, because this is a big deal to to be on the support crew. Um, Scott took on this journey, but he did not do it by himself. He had this beautiful woman, Jenny, helping him. Were you gonna say something? Okay, I want to hear from Jenny. Like, I have thought this through. I read the book North. I actually, has anybody read North? 
Yeah. Okay. We've got a lot of people have read the book. This is this recounts their journey on the Appalachian Trail. I actually listened to it on audio uh, in the hospital after I had my my baby. So I had your voices in my ears. You can come on up. Come on up. This is Raven, right? Hi, Raven. She's gonna join us for this part of the talk. She's fine. Um, so Jenny, tell us. So, so as I listened to you guys recount the story, I was thinking, whoa, like I could not do what Jenny did because you were there. You, he would say, I'm going to show up at this mark on the course at this time. And you would kind of just have to show up and hope that he came because he couldn't call you and say, hey, I'll be there in two hours. So talk about your experience as the crew. I mean, this is like when you guys were talking about the olden days before the internet and everything. I felt like this was before cell phones when you had to make plans and then stick to them. You couldn't just be like, oh, let's ping me later and I'll tell you where I am. Because we really had no way to communicate. And so we just plotted every morning, plotted where I was going to meet him. And I would just hope that he'd be there. And he was always like one hour, two hours, three hours late. And I just didn't know, like, <laughs> I mean, for reals, if any of you guys were following, y he was always showing up way later than I expected. And then there was really, like, it would take me three hours to get there, and I'd always run through all those things in my head, like, did I miss him, or did he fall and, like, maybe backtrack, and is he's waiting for me on a rock somewhere? Like, I always had those things play through my head, but thankfully he always came, you know, he always met me at the meeting spot, but usually a lot later. <laughs> I would not do well. Can you talk to us about, like, did this strengthen your marriage? I mean, that is a test. I mean, it's funny because he always paints me as like, oh, she's a hard ass, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, I'm out there, tr you know, trying to find water and ice and like washing his dirty shorts and like whatever spare time I had. Um, so it was it was a, a test on our marriage, but it was awesome. It was just we it was at a time in our life when we needed to just peace out and head into the mountains and like kind of regroup a little bit. So this was kind of like the ideal trip for us. And we it definitely is one of the most like special things we've done. I want to talk about, were you going to say well, something? I was just going to say, too, um, when I mentioned earlier about put yourself in the hurt locker, um, we had friends joke, like, that sounds like a recipe for divorce attorneys after. Um, <laughs> but uh, this is where I think doing things as a couple, or you probably have done things with, say, a friend, and it can either strengthen a relationship or it can break it apart. And um, the, this was one of those things where it actually strengthened. So uh, I think it's good to do things as a couple from time to time. Maybe you don't have to do the Appalachian Trail um, and spend 46 days following your partner around and dealing with their uh, ups and downs and all that, but it was really a special moment. So I'd say, you know, do some things with your, your partners or significant others or friends and test, not test, but challenge those relationships because a lot of times they get stronger. Um, I want to ask one more question about the Appalachian Trail in regards to the camaraderie and the community. You mentioned uh, Carl Meltzer and Speed Go, and after you broke the record, the fastest known time, he went and, and went after it. And you actually like went out and supported him and helped him break your record. So can you talk about 
that's a special thing in the ultra running community. So can you talk about what that means and why people do things like that? I mean, that's the thing. Carl, um, un unannounced to us, or I didn't even know he knew. And again, I don't want to ruin the book. Those of you who haven't read the book, we won't ruin. There's no spoiler alerts. But Carl actually, I didn't tell Carl we were going to go out on the AT. And it wasn't until we were driving, actually, we were going through St. Louis at the time. I get a call from Carl. And he's like, dude. What the heck? He's like, well, he uses a different language than that. I'll, I'll keep it a little bit more polished here. But he's like, first of all, why are you going backwards? And then he's like, why didn't you tell me? Like, he was, he was actually kind of miffed that I didn't, you know, ask him questions. Because Carl had attempted it twice. And uh, he's like, well, I'm going to come out and help you. And he's like, just, just wait for me in another week or two. I'll have a plan. And so he drove out, and Jenny was not ready to handle the speed goat <laughs> for two weeks. But... Again, it's, it goes to show you like the community of ultra running, and I think running is becoming more like running. The road runners used to not be so friendly to each other, like used to have a different vibe. But I feel like that's happening in road running too, where we all help each other and we can all share a beer. But when the gloves come off on the race course, like we go at it. And Carl was one of those guys like we raced against each other in Hard Rock and a lot of races. But we also wanted to help each other do things. So I think. It, it speaks to something about the community and not only um, the other aspect, the Appalachian Trail community, the people that would come out and just do random acts of kindness and, and show Jenny and I just all this support. And I think that's what I love, again, about that, that sport. But rivals can actually come together, and I think that's – there's hope in the, the world of sports when it comes to like that, things like that where you think, okay, that can happen. And it was also surreal to, for me to be able to help Carl – um, I basically watched him broke, break my record the last 10 days. And <laughs> there were a lot of times Jenny and I joked like, well, what if you just missed him one time, like at a road crossing or, you know, or what if I left him up in the, uh, the Smoky Mountains without a, a bed to sleep in when he actually had to sleep on the trail for the first time uh, his whole journey. So it was a lot of fun to be out there. It's not that I didn't want Carl to come out. I mean, I love Carl, but... There's anybody who's crude knows that there's a thing as like too many cooks in the kitchen. And I think that's why one of the things that Scott didn't tell people, he didn't let anybody know that he was doing it, was just because we wanted it to be an adventure of our own and we wanted to make our own mistakes. And Carl is so precision, he's so like NASA scientist that it was just a little different vibes. But once he came out, I was so grateful. And like he's one of my dearest friends now, so. We love you, Carl. Me too. Hey, and you guys, if you haven't uh, watched the Netflix, there's a documentary called Broken, and it it uh, goes all along Carl's journey to break it, and Scott has some appearances um, in that. Or it's called Made to Be Broken. Oh, Made to Be Broken. Is that right? Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, my husband has done this to me a couple times, so that means I need to ask some into the podcast questions, and we're going to do some... Um, we're going to do a couple audience questions as if anybody has them. I think Gareth was going to pick a couple people. So, Jenny, I would love for you to answer these questions as well. I always wrap up my podcast with a few questions. And the first is, what is one thing professionally or personally that you haven't done yet that you would like to do? Um, well, Jenny and I, like, we're trying to work on, I mean, that's the, the, the one thing, like, those of you who've read North, I think some people who saw it when I was breaking the record, they're, they're there's some talk from people that are just dedicated hikers and through hikers that were like, this guy's missing the point, why would you want to rush things? But one of the things that 
um, I want to do professionally and personally is to finish the Pacific Crest Trail with Jenny. We're on the 20-year plan, though. We, we do a section every year, so you don't have to take you know, six months off and do the Appalachian Trail. You can do sections every year, and that's what Jenny, so we're section hiking the Pacific Crest Trail out west, and that goes from the Mexican border down in California all the way to the Washington-Canadian border. And so, um, 2,600 miles. And so, since we've had kids, we've missed a few sections. So I can't wait to get back out there and do that. And then I'm hoping um, one of the other things I'd love to do is get my American 24-hour record back. Um, but sometimes I'm like, oh, I know what the training requires, um, and I know what that race entails. It's like the PhD of ultras. So sometimes I'm like, you know, I've got 170 plus miles in me. 165 wasn't as far as I could go. So part of me, but then other times, it's, it's a tough race to gear up for because it's so monotonous. Um, running a one-mile loop course is not fun. Yeah. But again, it's, it's about those things of getting out and doing the hard things. No, the PCT was my answer, too. I want to finish that trail. Though, though Glenn was telling me to wrap up, I, I forgot to ask your, his question for you. So um, I'm going to go ahead and throw this out there since you mentioned wanting to break your record again. Uh, the ultra scene is getting really competitive, you know, and you see guys like Jim Walmsley, he just ran the Olympic standard in a half marathon and won Western States last year. I want to know, my husband wants to know, if you think, if you were competing right now, would you rise to the occasion and be up there with those guys? <laughs> he looks happy Je that Jenny, I asked Jenny's this question. Got an, Jenny's got an answer for this. Well, I... I love this question because it's, it's kind of like the, the age-old, you know, question, like champions being like, you know, it's like the Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson, you know, Vander Holyfield. Like, you, you can, like, look, it's the same thing with, like, quarterbacks and, I mean, you name it, every sport. They're like, I wonder if they were playing in the day of whatever or I wonder if they could be <sighs> – it's really hard. Like, some days I'm like, damn, I'm glad I'm not running, you know, 100 milers right now. Um, and then part of me also is like – I ran against guys that could run 214, 215, 216 on the road for marathon. And uh, I loved being able to get a chance at taking them in 100 miles. So uh, if I was running today, could I beat Jim? I don't know. Like, would I, I might train differently. I might, um, yeah, it, it'd be hard to say. And so I don't want to, again, be that old timer and be like, oh, yeah, for sure. Well, the, back when I was running, we didn't have this or that. But, uh, I think for me, it, it really would be hard to say because I'd have to be in that. And that's what I love about competition. It usually elevates us and pushes us. And that's why having a guy like Dave Mackey show up in 2004, like I had run against Rich Hanna. He was you know, world champion at 100K. He was a 216, 217 marathoner. So very skilled on the roads and very fast. But again, 100 milers breaks us down like nothing else. And so I always loved having that opportunity to beat and race against some of these really fast guys. And at the time, I would try to find the best competition. So it gets tricky nowadays. Um, how could I compare myself? It's, yeah, it's really hard. But I don't know. It, it's, it's hard to say again. Because a lot of people think, oh, yeah, every generation is getting faster. But again, would that, would that fast crowd push people a little bit further? Would I have trained differently? And most of us were working jobs, you know, back then. I had to work a job. I wasn't getting sponsorship to late latter part of my career that I could actually race only. Um, so it's really tricky now, too, and how you do that. What was your answer, Jenny? <laughs> um, oh, no, I was just going to be like, don't be that guy. Don't be, don't be that guy like the Showtime Lakers. Could they beat the Warriors? You know, it's just it's kind of apples and oranges. Yeah. I love it. Um, all right, guys, what's one message you'd like to send to 
the world, my listeners, everybody in this restaurant? Um, I'll start. I guess if people have read our book, you know, there w- and people who followed along on the Appalachian Trail, there were so many people who came out. And at first, for me, it was a little bit too much because I was trying to do a lot. And then having all these people constantly show up and asking questions and, and just kind of asking for rides and asking to watch their kids. and so It was, like, overwhelming for me. And I kind of didn't understand why... Scott was so open and so willing to share and so like just so welcoming and then and then I really saw that they like as much life energy as he was giving out answering questions and kind of just like being hospitable and friendly they were giving him back so much energy and so much just so much like motivation and encouragement that that's really what I saw is just that, I mean, because if people were saying nobody else would try to break a record and have all these other, like, common people, like, join along with them. But he he really thrived on that, and I felt like it really helped. And so I feel, I guess what I learned and my takeaway was just that you, what you put out, you get back, and if not, like, 20-fold. And he really, and the people just really gave him so much energy that we couldn't have done it without him. Love it. Yeah, I mean, she almost, uh, <laughs> I think, I don't know if I need to follow that up. I mean, that's really what I think running in general, kind of would summarize things here um, tonight to a lot of you. Again, I, I just want to say, like, everyone assumes that we can all have an impact and we can all give out a lot of energy more than what we think. And I, again, from my experience, Carl just thought I was crazy. Like, he was constantly saying, like, dude, lose that tracker. Because there'd be, you know, 20, 30 people showing up at Trailheads you know, people in the morning would be there ready to run with me. And when you need to put on your game face or when you need to have a conversation with your partner, with your close buddy who's trying to get you psyched up to do another, you know, 14 at 7 o'clock at night uh, when the sun's going down and you're thinking to yourself, like, I just did, you know, 40-some miles. How am I going to do another, you know, 14, 15 right now into 2 hour, you know, 2 a.m. In, into the morning? It was... But even outside of all of that, it's, it's really, it was really the, the whole experience. And that's where I would encourage people is don't, don't always think like, okay, I have to keep this to myself. Um, you really, giving back and sharing things is important. And you don't have to always do that. But it was what I wanted to do with that experience. And the Appalachian Trail was so much more, it was for Jenny and I, but in the end, it actually was about everybody around us and those that were uh, logging in. I'm sure people like were following on social media, and Jenny and I didn't even realize what was going on. Everybody assumed we had this huge PR company, and we had like people doing our social media. It was Jenny and I once in a while taking a photo, and if we had internet or if we had a signal to get a message out, and um, it was really kind of amazing how, so from a social media standpoint, it can be, have a really positive impact and can really encourage people, podcasts like yours too, and, and what you can do. So I'd encourage other people, you know, have experiences for yourself and sometimes, you know, keep that to yourself, but also there's times when you should share things and, and giving, giving of yourself too. And I think there's, there's so much to be experienced in that, that respect, because it's easy to go out and get that PR or that goal but it's another thing to be able to help somebody achieve a dream. And that's where Jenny and I were both blown away, how people wanted to be a part of that energy. And it was, it was like this force of just like 
you know, it would circle back to us and it would go out to people and yeah, it was, it was quite magical. Part of what I'm hearing is don't take yourself too seriously. I mean, seriously, because you could have been like, head down, I don't want to welcome any of this, but I'm going to let you guys in. And ultimately, you benefited from that. Yeah. And it's not for everybody. I mean, I, I know there's a lot of people in the audience, are, and I know there's other athletes, friends of mine, like my buddy Speed Goat. He's, he's not a warm, fuzzy guy, but like Jenny and I got to see this other side of Speed Goat. Like, you can crack that open. And I think... Um, yeah, you just have to be able to be willing for that experience and be open to it. And yeah, you don't, you're not, maybe not made out to do, that's the thing. I started young in my career of like sleeping on the track and, yeah. and hanging out with other people. But Jenny hates when I like talk to people forever. And on the Appalachian Trail, it's not, no, 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 I'm sorry, not, when I'm trying to, when I was trying to do something, like sometimes you're like, okay, you got to focus a little bit more. Um, I shouldn't say that he, she hates it. I don't hate that. I mean, he's talking about like when our he's talking to our neighbors, like it takes him forever just to say bye, have a nice day, you know. <laughs> I'm the same way. My husband feels that how you feel. The Minnesota Jenny. nice thing, I guess. I don't know. Yes, it's a Midwest thing. All right, we have a couple. Uh, Gareth from Athletic Annex says handpicked. So your questions, they better be good, guys. S people from the audience, you guys, and those listening on Facebook, there are like 350 people here. This is no joke. So you're, yeah, yeah come on up. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Tony Jen, and I wanted to know, what is the best time to take nutrition when you're running, doing the long runs? Okay, the, the question is, when is the best time to take in nutrition? And I assume he means uh, calories, carbohydrate. Um, the best time is actually at the start and all through the run. So those of you who are running marathons um, or running anything longer than two hours, you really should be hitting it every 20 to 30 minutes and from the get-go. So don't wait. I think a lot of people think, and this is unfortunately still you'll see marathons today, mile 16, they'll have the energy gel stop. And, you know, that's way too late. So think every 20 to 30 minutes for that. So... All right. And, yeah. Next. Uh, my name's Ray Kenley. Um, how old were you when, like, when were you, when did you run your first half marathon? And how did you feel, like, before running it and, like, during running it? Okay, that's a good question. Because my first half marathon um, happened after my first marathon. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't actually follow the right progression. Um, I think my first half marathon was, I might have been 22 or so actually when I ran my first half marathon. But um, I ran my first marathon when I was 20. And that's when a month later I ran my first 50 miler. So for young guys and gals like you, I always tell them like there's plenty of time to do the half marathons and the marathons and even ultras. You'll see 12-year-olds, 14-year-olds running ultras. Not that I think it's wrong. If they love it, great. But um, if you have your speed, save your speed. So wait on the half marathons. Keep it to those 5Ks and, and shorter because there's a lot, lot, of, lot of time left. You can wait till you're at least 20. <laughs> he's already done it. So yeah. Oh, he's already he's, done it. He's way ahead of me. <laughs> Thank you, Ray. All right. We got Holly here. Hello. Um, hats off to you, though. You are a badass. Okay. You're on the screen, Oh, oh, too. oh. Mike, hello. Shout out to Team Film. Okay, my question is very easy and short. So I know you grew up in a situation where you were resilient and struggled, but now that you've made it to fame, what's your guilty pleasure, like, 
herbal, alcohol, carrot cake, like the one thing where you're like, I shouldn't do it, but I have to have it. I smoke unfiltered cigarettes, at least a pack. I'm just kidding. No, I'm just joking. No, I'm joking. No, I'm joking. No, no, I'm totally joking. Um, oh, guilty pleasure. Jenny probably could answer this better than me. Um, I... I'm a believer. I drink all forms of alcohol. I don't have, like, this is one thing. I'm an equal opportunist. Um, but I have, a, I have a soft spot for um, tequila, actually. Tequila is my, that and mezcal, it would be my, my choice. And again, far from northern Minnesota, I should be drinking vodka with my Polish roots. But um, for whatever reason, yeah, I love uh, mezcal or tequila. But that would be my guilty pleasure. When it comes to, like, desserts, because people know how healthy I eat, um, in fact, this month I'm trying to go um, whole foods, fully plant-based, which means no oil, no sugar, no white flour. And um, I'm a big, like, those of you that are peanut butter um, balls or peanut butter bumpers, uh, panda puffs, that's like an evening cold cereal, basically peanut butter Captain Crunch. Because I, when I was a kid, I always dreamed of peanut butter Captain Crunch, and my mom would never buy it. And... Uh, so that's my guilty pleasure when it comes to, like, training hard and evening. I, I eat it as dessert. All right, we got an Indiana Trail guy here. Come on up. Uh, thanks so much for coming out. Um, so I have a two-part question. I heard you mention a lot of the community aspect of run it, trail running and what it brings to, to the running and to inspiration in general. Uh, what do you think about some of the races that are becoming so big uh, especially like uh, UTMB, you know, um, they're so almost corporate now versus like local trail runs. I mean, I know everybody has to make a living somewhere in this field. There's not a lot of money in uh, smaller races for people who are trying to make a living being athletes. But, you know, obviously these people that are, that are putting everything into their running, they're coming from somewhere and, and they're, not, they're not being necessarily picked up right off the bat by by shoe companies so um, can you speak on that and uh, because running is inspiration where is the most beautiful place you've ever run and I know that can vary by day or by moment just because of where you are when the sunlight hits it so thanks I'll answer the the second part first so where's the most beautiful place I've ever run and I'd have to say anywhere that there's a little thread of single track um, anytime I'm running when the sun's coming up or going down, like you don't have to be in the Himalaya. Like if I were to tell you like, yeah, I finally got a chance to go to the Himalaya and that was like one of my dream places to go and run. And I'd have to say like, that was mind boggling to like see the scale of those mountains. But then I've also come to appreciate those times when I'm running here and you know, someplace or rural Minnesota or Indiana or like somewhere flat that doesn't have mountains. So I think it's wherever like you can put your mindset. You can be in a big city. I've learned to appreciate traveling and, and getting around and just being somewhere in the city. And so I think sometimes we can be trail and mountain snobs and think that we can't find that in the city. And, and those of us who live in flat places, I grew up in Minnesota, and it's not these beautiful picturesque mountains, and you just have to be able to do it. So that gets to your first part. It's a very good question. Um, I see a lot of young runners who want to make it uh, and they have to start at the small local races. And I'd say start at those local races. Like, you got to start somewhere. I never thought I'd be making money in ultra running. And if it weren't for something like Born to Run and maybe a couple of other things that happened at the right time, I would have been a broke ultra runner. I mean, I, I had credit card debt from going to races because I wanted to go and 
test myself, and I wasn't expecting a paycheck. So my advice to all those young and aspiring runners or the race director that's, how do I get these fast guys or gals to show up to my race, or how can I get this to grow? Just keep doing it. Doing it, do it because you love it. Um, we've seen races like the Indiana 100 flourish here um, and grow, and maybe it's not gonna be the Western states, but um, you know, people are gonna come from you know, the five-state area, the you know, four-state area to those races, and then eventually, you know, you might get uh, to talk to somebody who's really fast, who's on vacation, visiting their family to come and do your race, but don't stop doing it or don't not do it because you expect you're going to make it big. Um, and you could just keep aspiring because for me, it was like one day I'm going to run Western States. I'm going to go out and win it. And you have to have that attitude, but you also have to be welcoming and, you know, still be a great, and that's why I mentioned earlier, being a great sportswoman or sportsman and getting out there and talk to other people. And sometimes top runners just think they're going to get a paycheck and if they run fast, but uh, there's a lot of value in being great ambassadors for the sport. And I think that's what you have to focus on first and foremost, um, in addition to speed and, and winning races. So yeah, don't stop it. But it is hard now. I mean, I'll, I'll admit there's, there's a race every other weekend and there's a lot of pressure to race all the time. So um, don't race all the time is what I'd say to a lot of young people too, because like you said, the races over in Europe or Australia, New Zealand, you could race in Asia, you can race every time of the year now. And I think young athletes are almost pushing themselves too far. So think thinking long range and uh, don't expect uh, the paychecks to come right away. <laughs> Sometimes uh, social media and the internet makes it sound uh, glamorous that ultra running is uh, this great sport. So those of you parents, don't let your uh, kids become ultra runners. It's like, <laughs> Took me uh, 20, almost 20 years to make a living at it, so stay well, in school. We've got one more. Come on up. We got uh, two people coming up. Let's hear it. Let's hear your names first. Hi, I'm Brett, and this is Brendan. I'm wondering if you can just speak a little bit about how practicing yoga has affected your running physically and mentally. It's a good question. It reminds me I need to do more, actually, right now, because <laughs> Jenny dragged me to a yoga class the other night, actually. I hadn't gone. Um, those of you who have read, eat, and run, yoga was something. I was one of those, you know, again, I grew up. Minnesota redneck backwoods guy like I was not going to be caught dead in a yoga class especially um, in Seattle with all these you know yogis and yoginis that were way more flexible than me and uh, I had to drop the ego and just be like you know what if I need five blocks to do this pose I'm going to do this pose and I I basically respected yoga and respected where I'm at so I would recommend um, I think it's a very healthy uh, attribute or a, a adjunct activity for running and not so much from the flexibility standpoint, but the, the stability and more than anything for me, it was also about breath. And I don't want to say mind control because I don't think we control our mind. We, um, we basically uh, help you know, form, our, form our mind and help our mind to be able to do more things. And for me, um, meditation and other aspects of it were really helpful. So being open to those other aspects of yoga. Some people go to yoga for a workout. And I would recommend um, don't go there for a workout because runners tend to be very competitive and they go to a yoga class and they actually injure themselves because they're like, I'm going to do that pose better than that person or why can't I do that? And so they end up pulling a muscle or they end up doing something. So I'd uh, encourage you to leave the ego at the door. And this is what I mentioned earlier. Do things differently. Try a different format of training. Um, mix it up. It's still January. So those of you who haven't set a New Year's intention or resolution, um, try a new, say, supplemental training like yoga or core, core training. It's, it's a great way. So I learned a lot from it, and uh, I just haven't been doing as much of it formally at a studio. But you can do small amounts at home, too. 
That's what I love. Yoga can be done like one or two poses at your desk. Like it doesn't have to be this hour long session. Thank you. Thank Great you guys. Question. Yeah. Thank you everybody for your questions. I think we're going to do, who, does anybody want to win something? Okay. All right. Great. Me too. Uh, and we're going to do a couple of the giveaways. And then actually, if you see this big banner over here, uh, Scott is going to head over afterwards and we'll form a line. Courtney uh, with Michelob Ultra Zinc Distributing over here. She's she will be starting the line. So if you want to get a book signed, a Kindle, a shoe, anything, if you want a tattoo on your arm, whatever, Scott will sign it. So that will be over there. But let's let's. I didn't do know I was doing tattoos tonight. That's. <laughs> yeah, we yeah we actually have a real pin and everything. A tattoo no. artist. Okay, wow. We're gonna let Scott announce some winners here. Is that good? Yeah. You wanna, and okay. I actually have one. I'm going to give away one of the ultimate direction vests with a question as we're gearing up and getting ready. So for this question, and I know I'm going to first hand up, who can tell me my trail name on the Appalachian Trail? Oh, I see this. The woman in the back. Shout it out loud as you can. Let's hear it. No, no. Oh, no cheating. No, no consulting. She, she knows. It's not Elvenado. I started as Elvenado, but my official trail name in the back. Hey, woman at the bar. Yes. What? Not Jerker. Nope. That was my guess. Yeah, I know. That was given to me as well. Yep. The one that was given to me. Nobody? This right guy. here. Webwalker. This guy got it. it. Took three tries. It was a good question. He gets an ultimate direction. Uh, Scott Jurek, Eat and Run Pack. All right. And Jenny has one question here, too. What? Oh, and we have a special. Who's the gentleman, again, that had the AT adorned uh, Pathfinder or SUV? He's right there. Hand up. He's got, we got a special prize for you. We've got a Hydra flask. Jenny had this uh, logo designed, and she actually made it um, for our North tour. And we never actually got to put these, but like to give you a, uh, a North Hydra flask water bottle. Yes. No way. And you, so you were out on the trip. So tell us the story here behind this picture. Uh, I, uh, I threw hiked the, uh, the AT in 2015. I threw hiked in 2015. And uh, in Pennsylvania, I, uh, I met Scott. He, uh, he just stopped. He used the privy. And he came and he, t and he took a photo at the bathroom. Trail speak. And he, uh, he, even though he was busy breaking a record, he stopped. Uh, he said what me and my friends were doing was awesome. And it's like, dude, you're the awesome one. So it's just great to meet him three years later. So thank you. If you don't mind me asking, what's your trail name? Cambo. Cambo. See, this is what I love. And so... Thank you, Campbell. I mean, well, so when we rolled into the parking lot, I was like, "Oh yeah, that car is getting a prize oh. right here." <laughs> so he's an AT buff, uh, class of 2015, right? Or have you done it as well another time? I've done it one and a quarter times. He's done it one and a quarter times. So there's a story behind that. If you don't know Cambo, get to know why he didn't finish that other time. He did a quarter, but <laughs> or maybe he's maybe he's section hiking or was section. But this is again what I love. Um, Folks from Indiana do the Appalachian Trail. You don't have to be from the mountains, and uh, it's uh, an amazing journey, and uh, hats off to you. When do, what month did you finish? August. So he finished in August, and you started? End of March. So Jenny's got to get a picture here. Awesome. Thank you so much for this photo. Great memories. Yeah. Jenny, so. did you have a question for, to win? No, no, that was it. Kind of okay. I, I guess I stole that one. You guys, this was awesome. Thank you so, so, so much.
Yes, thank you Michelob Ultra. Thank you all the sponsors. Lily Trotters, Coros Global, Athletic Annex, the 500 Festival Mini, Brooks Running. Thank you guys. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Jenny. Thank you, and thanks to the District Tap for hosting us, and again, for the whole crew. You guys have been awesome, and one of these, Jenny and I need to come out for the, uh, the mini. Yes. That's one yes. of our goals. Yeah, we should. We'll rally for that. Heard big things about that, so yeah. thanks again, and I'll be sticking around doing yeah. photos. We'll try to get a process going, too. Those of you yeah, that we'll want to sit for a while, um, <laughs> feel free to, yeah, I don't, not that you want to sit, maybe run around the block or something, but <laughs> we don't want to wait in line, but I'll be hanging out as long as you guys need me to. Thanks, guys. All right, everybody, that wraps it up. Thank you so much. And if you were at the show in person, I'm so happy that you were there. And if you came up and we got to talk and meet, thank you for doing so. I love it when listeners come and introduce themselves to me. Big thanks again to Scott and Jenny Jurek for taking the time and bringing your cute kiddos to the live show so we could meet your whole family. Thank you, Michelob Ultra, Coros Global, Lily Trotters, and Athletic Annex for partnering with this uh, event leading up to the 500 Festival Mini Marathon. Hey guys, go get yourself some Generation You Can. Fuel up right for your next marathon or half marathon or whatever you're running. GenerationYouCan.com slash another. Use that code another19. All right, everybody. Have a great rest of your Friday. Have a great weekend. And as always, I'll see you next Friday.